pay its mark. Now that the healthcare industry isn't singularly focused on the common goal of combating COVID, facilitating testing and providing vaccines, I've been taking a step back and analyzing where pharma marketers go from here. A couple of weeks ago on this podcast, we featured results from a CMO panel on what pandemic era initiatives health and pharma brands are looking to continue to invest in. The answer, providing solid healthcare experiences to patients and physicians that build trust, supplying data that facilitate those experiences, and holding on to their reputational gains. This week, I'll try to provide further perspective on the post-COVID digital landscape for brands with an interesting case study. MMNM senior reporter Lesha Bushak also returns with a new installment of her policy segment. Lesha, what you got for us this week? Hi, Mark. Good to be here again. Today, I'll be discussing how the federal government may be considering further drug pricing regulation options beyond the Medicare negotiation provision included in the Inflation Reduction Act, including something called margin rights. For my segment, I'll speak with Janie Vitlina, COE Lead of Portfolio Insights and Market Research Innovation at Novartis, and Steve Reeves, VP and Head of Digital Strategy for Ipsos Healthcare, about a new approach to understanding how information flows within treatment categories and how it can offer a basis for effective two-way engagement between pharma and the end customer. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. Janie and Steve, welcome to the MMM Podcast. Thank you. Thanks great for having to be us. here. Thanks so much, Mark. Absolutely. Great to have you both. So last month, I reported that pharma's digital ad spend is growing at a slower rate than the first two years of the COVID-19 pandemic. While the industry's digital ad spend numbers are projected to increase in absolute dollars to nearly $16 billion this year, 14% greater than its 2021 spend, an analysis predicted that the meteoric 27% and 26% digital media increases seen among pharma and healthcare brands in 2020 and 2021, respectively, are a thing of the past. But spending millions on ads that sit on a big-name site doesn't necessarily lead to meaningful experiences for patients and physicians. Organizations need to take the time to map the interconnected web of information flow within a therapeutic category and determine which entities shape the narrative of a category. Only then can an organization understand what role it should play. Janie and Steve, that was the thrust of the case study that you put together. Janie, can you explain the genesis of the concept you call online ecosystem mapping? Yeah, thanks, Mark. So this question really came out of of the direction where uh, kind of pharma is headed right now, right? So there's a lot of emphasis on everything digital, personalization, omni-channel, and probably the number one question that we get is where do physicians go for information, right? How how do they find out what they need to find out and where are they really spending their time? Um, And we haven't really had a good answer. You know, I've, I've kind of been searching out for this for a really long time throughout my career. And there's just not really been a good way to answer. You know, most times we're either asking physicians outright or it's part of a survey, um, you know, or it's a a media study, but it's really all just stated responses that are, um, that, you know, we rely on their memory and people just, they don't think like that, right? You know, we go from one site to one site, but we don't really think about it in terms of how am I, how am I planning out my, my route throughout the, the online space. Um, so when I got together with Steve, right, we were really brainstorming kind of what does it mean to search for information online? And we took it in a slightly different direction, right? We took a slightly different perspective, meaning that we thought about it in terms of 
who are the influencers and who are the folks who are um, who are kind of creating the narrative in the space that users, that HCPs, that consumers that are following, right? And how do we map that kind of flow of information from influencer to influencer, not only to understand how people are going between one source and another, but to understand how is certain content, certain messages being leveraged and elevated, and how can we leverage that for our product? Sure. And you did this uh, for the rare renal disease online landscape, uh, specifically a couple of disease states, um, IgAN, also known as Berger's disease, and CG3, complement 3 glomerulopathy. I'm not sure pronouncing that right. Uh, yes, both, that's correct. Okay, okay. Both kidney diseases where Novartis has an asset in preclinical development, I believe. Yes. And um, so you needed to know how to position the franchise. Steve, what were your four objectives? Yeah, so we framed the project under the, the the following four sort of objectives, if you will, um, you know, focal points. The first one is really helping Novartis to assess the full renal disease uh, landscape online and also identifying where to best focus patient-centric online engagement strategies um, and then also corresponding tactics. Um, the second objective in this initiative was determining which entities influence the flow of information respective to renal disease, and then assessing potential partnership opportunities that we could recommend to, um, to Novartis. And when we think about entities, um, we track various players online and how they shape the narrative in a given therapeutic category, be it you know organizations, physicians, patients, patient advocacy groups, et cetera. Um, the third was really gauging how competitors shape the narrative online and identifying white space opportunities that'll help Novartis drive patient-centric engagement strategies. And so, you know, what are the sort of what's the low-hanging fruit, number one, but also what is the long-term strategic play in helping Novartis to, to really play a critical role in um, awareness building um, and so on and so forth for uh, rare renal online. And then lastly, evaluating how patients utilize online channels to research renal disease and, and how Novartis can improve the patient experience online. Um, one of the things that you know, we've seen time and time again in our research is that you know patients have their hand up so to speak virtually for better experiences for more empathy driven content and so um, really helping brands and therapy franchises understand the um, i would call it more humanistic needs non-clinical needs of patients online was a was a key focal point Sure. And, uh, you know, just to talk for a second about what resources you drew on for this, you know, Steve will stay with you on this one. Sure. Uh, Ipsos is a big primary market research company, so you probably have some big data sets to draw from. And ecosystem mapping, as I understand it, is mainly observing versus asking, right? Correct. Yeah, and that's exactly right. And one of the things that I really focus on at Ipsos, you know, being a head of digital um, in, in the healthcare organization is the, the different data sets that are out there that are um, that are able to be used for the purpose of observational research. So um, we talked about a little bit earlier, Mark. Um, you know, we, we can certainly ask physicians, we can ask patients questions and, and you know, that's that's a fantastic, you know, way and modality to um, generate insights. But there is also um, this, you know, I wouldn't say new approach, but when we think about how to weave digital data sources together, um, it becomes 
more impactful in the sense that we can understand how they're using search, how they're using uh, social, how they're using um, the, the broader web, um, where they start, um, how long it takes for them to get to a certain place. Um, and that's both on the physician and the, the patient uh, side of the house. And so um, it, it's really about organically understanding what is the pathway of the HCP, what is the pathway of the patient, and then how to create content, engagement, communication, messaging that really meets them where they are at that certain point in time in their digital journey. Great, great. And then the results were somewhat surprising. Uh, what did you find when you applied this methodology to the ultra rare renal yep. space? So it's interesting, Mark, usually when we build ecosystem mapping, um, we see that patient advocacy groups are the leading entities that shape and, and, and kind of, I wouldn't say control, but shape and um, put a, a bit of structure to um, content that is, is, you know, therapeutically aligned online for the, for the end patient, um, followed by, you know, patients, uh, brands, competitors, et cetera. You know, those are all viable, you know, options. Um, the usual suspects, if, if you'll, uh, if you'll allow me to go <laughs> that direction. Um, but in this case, we actually saw the opposite. We saw that HCPs appeared to be banding together and specifically nephrologists um, banding together to help shape um, awareness, help uh, push out content, and it appeared to be sort of orchestrated. And so getting down to something as tactical as, wow, like we're seeing nephrologists really using Twitter in an interesting way. One one quick example, right? Or um, you know, doing things like gamification um, to drive awareness. And so it was interesting in the sense that uh, the coin had flipped. In this case, we had seen that HCPs were actually uh, really influential in shaping the online narrative for this particular category. And in most other categories, like I said, it's usually the PAGs or the patients uh, or influencers, so to speak. So um, it was it was a it was a unique finding. Yeah, in, indeed. And uh, and as you said, they kind of embraced Twitter. We'll get back to that in, in, a, in a few moments. And uh, Jane, I kind of want to ask you, uh, because I think you commented on this in, in the case study itself, what did patients' online activity look like? It wasn't exactly a straight line, right? Yeah, for the patients, it was really interesting because what we found was that they're using information sources in different ways, depending on their journey. So what we found is that there may be things that were really valuable and helpful at the beginning. And then as they kind of progressed in their knowledge, um, in their relationship with their physician, um, with their disease state, right, it became a little bit less, uh, less valuable, less important, but then that they were circling back to some of those things at a later stage, and using the same sources, but in a different way. And so for us, that was really meaningful, because that really had an impact on how we think about personalization, and how we're able to really cater to each of the stages um, that patients are in, in our unbranded and branded work. Yeah, just to add a little bit to that, for myself, coming from outside of pharma, you know, I've been in pharma for a while now, but coming outside of pharma from tech, really working for Dell and working for some software companies out there with digital data and web data, it's really, really interesting for me to see where pharma is going with regard to things like setting the stage for personalization. You know, it's something that we hear all the time, you know, how do we create consumer-centric content as a pharma organization? And what can we learn from industries that have gone before us, so to speak. And so 
one of the interesting things and points of utility for the ecosystem mapping is really getting a sense for um, how we lay that groundwork for future personalization in healthcare. Great. And so since you mentioned that, it's a perfect segue to my next question. Um, you know, once you can better understand that dynamic between patients and physicians, what are the implications for elevating uh, Novartis's content and, and for messaging? The interesting thing that we found with this work is that it actually became a pretty foundational body of work for us. This was, there were a lot of implications in terms of our media strategy and our media investment, as well as of understanding the difference in messaging that we needed for social versus search. We've already used this work to begin building out our unbranded campaign, which is really heavily going to be focused on really tailoring kind of information and providing resources for patients at different stages in their journey and really focusing on those unique and individual needs. So this is this is a piece of work that has that has essentially kind of flipped what what we've what we have expected with our with our messaging and our media strategy and investment. Sure. I was wondering, can you give an example kind of where you found resources maybe were better allocated in one place versus another to improve your digital presence? That's a great question. We Might haven't launched yet. So <laughs> okay. All right. To, so, to I'll th let me see now. if let me see if I can kind of speak to it at a high level. Okay. Um, in some ways that there has been some confirmation in terms of the relationships and the prioritization um, with, with PEGS and kind of and other groups. One of the ways in which this has been more transformational uh, as a body of work for, for our media strategy and investment is really the kind of setup of this as more of a SWOT analysis, but really at a higher level. This kind of positions work that we would have done with our media agent, our marketing team would have done with our media agency in partnership with, with the insights team and really takes it to the next level. We have integrated heat maps for partners for the PEGs, as well as kind of prioritization uh, matrices that allow us, that give us a look not only into kind of helping to confirm what we've already known in terms of who are all the key players, but really taking it to the next level to show us kind of where we would have partnered, okay, where we would have really prioritized our investment and what that would look like. So it really offers a future looking glimpse into how our investment would be performing and gives us an opportunity to tailor that before we make the investment. Sure, sure. Okay. And, you know, you found unsurprisingly that when you message around an asset's strengths or weaknesses, if it shows uh, that the asset meets the needs of that physician and that patient community, it can be seen as authentic, you know, versus promotional uh, type of messaging. Is there a way you can elaborate on how you kind of are looking to capitalize on the ecosystem mapping to quote unquote, break down the wall between the brand and the end customer? Yeah, I think one of the ways was really the importance in understanding the difference in messaging between kind of search and social, right? Patients are in different areas. Um, they're in different stages of their journey when they're, when they're kind of looking at one versus another. Um, and so really having that understanding of where do they go specifically for specific needs really gives us an opportunity to be able to um, customize and tailor our partnership with them as needs-based, right? Because ultimately that's our goal. We're looking to help these patients who are, you know, in C3G, there's really not a whole lot. Physicians and patients are like, are really struggling. There's not a whole lot of information. There's not a whole lot of treatment options. And they're really struggling to find somebody who can, you know, be a partner with them as they, as they move towards a better life for themselves. Um, and so 
this gives us an opportunity to really be able to, to kind of customize and offer the assistance, offer the resources, offer the information, offer the partnership at times where it matters in the way that it matters to them. Yeah. And um, just to add to that really quickly. So, you know, my hypothesis and I need to you know, kind of any more data to prove it out, obviously, but my hypothesis is that because because there's there was a lack of viable information um, in C3G specifically, I think that prompted physicians to say, if it's not out there, we need to be more proactive in building awareness together, right? In raising the bar for, you know, understanding the, the disease state and understanding what the patient might be going through. And if we take a step back and look at ecosystem mapping um, in its truest sense, it's about understanding and stepping into the shoes of the patient you know, when they enter the digital sphere and they're bombarded with information. And a lot of that information is you know, not viable. A lot of their information potentially could be mis or disinformation, which is something that we you know, are starting to really pay close attention to in healthcare. And having the ability to um, to, to meet the patient where they are in their particular digital journey, if you will, it adds a lot more context to the ecosystem itself. Great. And Steve, I'll stay with you for a moment here. I wanted to circle back onto the point you made about social media channels like Twitter. Um, and we saw a nephrologist kind of embrace that in this case study. What role do you foresee Twitter playing among physicians across therapeutic categories? Yeah, it's, I love the question. I get the question a fair amount. Um, I think that COVID has driven physicians outside of the firewall, so to speak. So yes, they're still on Sermo. Yes, they're you know, on Doximity, et cetera. They're behind closed doors in, in a, lot of, a lot of instances. But I personally have seen through research conducted over the last two years, a pretty drastic increase in the adoption of Twitter specifically by physicians. You know, and, and having worked with Twitter for a long, long time, it's interesting to see the different vehicles, the different content vehicles, et cetera, that are potentially uh, more geared toward driving HCP adoption uh, and physician adoption. But it's not the only channel. I think that, you know, LinkedIn is going to be a really, really important channel to pay attention to as well in obviously the the understanding of KOLs and their you know impact online um, but more broadly speaking how um, physicians are connected to each other and how physicians are curating content that is either sort of centered around building their own brand or centered around um, driving better awareness to patients so there's sort of this like dichotomy that exists right now where you know a lot of physicians they'll build content to elevate their personal brand which makes complete sense and then there are many instances where physicians are actually their the ethos uh, why they're online is to improve the patient's experience with the condition and so i think as those two coalesce we're going to see more adoption of twitter and mainstream social channels by hcps okay and uh, do you see this as a replacement for social listening or perhaps a compliment so um social listening is you know, it's about 17 years old, something like that. I think that the industry started back in 2004, 2005. Um, and I was part of that industry for a long, long time. You know, social listening is, is, is valuable, but it's much more valuable looking at the with looking at the data within the context of other data sources. And so at Ipsos, we don't just rely on social listening, even though it's we own a social listening platform, as an example. We rely on weaving together disparate data sources that help tell a more holistic story of the end consumer, be it 
you know, a patient or a consumer for, you know, a different brand. And the other thing that I think is interesting with regard to just, you know, Ipsos in general is because we have so many clients that kind of span different industries, I think that there's a lot that we can learn in the adoption of various research techniques and practices that we could apply some to the healthcare space. And that's an exciting thing um, as someone who is, uh, you know, is trying to lead the way in, in that regard. Can I add just to that Please, quickly? Sure. Uh, so just speaking from the, from the, the client side, uh, yes, social media listening has been out for, for almost two decades. Uh, pharma, as we know, uh, moves at a glacial pace, right? So for a lot of us, social media listening is still very new uh, and not really adopted across all organizations kind of in, in a routine, fundamental way. And so as folks are kind of listening to this, right, so our, our marketing and our insights partners are listening, right, the difference in what we're getting from social media listening to uh, this, online, this online mapping was that social media listening gives us a kind of snapshot of what people are talking about right now, they're doing and they're talking about right now. And so it's really it kind of ends up being on our shoulders to guess what we should be talking about and how do we fit into that dialogue and to that, that discussion. This, this mapping is, it's the foundational body of work that is going to drive everything in your brand, right? So when you think about, you know, the challenges that you have with in-market in market, um, products or, you have, or your early assets, right? This is going to be the difference between having something where, you know, you're really trying to just take a guess at where you should be versus having a complete and comprehensive understanding of the network and the system within each, all of these players are kind of moving. And it gives those kinds of agile insights to have an understanding of how to play in the digital space. And I would say at Novartis, we've definitely never had this before. And this is something that has been um, so impactful to us that we are really seeing this as kind of a fundamental body of work um, that we would really like to see across all of our therapeutic areas. Yeah, and, and lastly, the, the interesting thing about ecosystem as opposed to just listening, you know, sort of by itself is that um, every ecosystem is inherently different. And I can say that based upon, you know, having worked on a, a, a large number of them. Um, the renal online ecosystem is 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 characteristically and structurally different than the type 2 diabetes ecosystem, than the um, uh, multiple sclerosis ecosystem. And so, you know, having having that knowledge, I think, is going to um, help brands further expand and franchises further expand how they leverage um, you know, disparate digital data sources, social being one of them, of course, for everything from you know, ecosystem design to um, digital journey analytics to online uh, patient personas, which is growing in importance um, every day. Right. So this project, which began out of a need to understand information-seeking behavior for an upcoming launch, has laid the groundwork for a future framework. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. All right. Great. Janie and Steve, thanks so much for joining me. It's really a fascinating conversation. Thanks, thanks for having Mark. us, Mark. We really appreciate it. Health Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak. Last week, Axios reported that Health and Human Services Secretary Xavier Becerra noted that the federal government may consider further drug pricing measures beyond the recently passed provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act. 
And his comments come after Congress passed that bill and it was signed into law in August. And the Inflation Reduction Act included historic drug pricing reduction measures, including allowing Medicare to negotiate the prices of certain high-cost Part D drugs. But in Becerra's recent comments, he said that the administration is planning to continue to explore every option they have for other drug pricing measures and that they wouldn't take anything off the table, including something called margin rights. Those margin rights are one of several different options for regulating drug prices that have been discussed in recent years. But the thing is that they're perhaps one of the more controversial options. And what they are is they're essentially the ability of the federal government to march in or take drug licenses from pharma companies and then allow other manufacturers to use those drug licenses if the government helps fund some of the research and development of those drugs. And some of the advocates for this option argue that, you know, in theory, this could help drop high drug costs and allow for more manufacturers to make cheaper versions of drugs. But it's a fairly controversial option because the pharma industry is quite opposed to it. They've argued that margin rights, if utilized more frequently, would hamper innovation and the development of drugs. Also, margin rights, as currently defined, are quite vague, uh, which makes it a bit difficult for the federal government to do much with them. Uh, there's a, there's actually already a clause in a 1980 bill called the Bayh-Dole Act that technically allows the federal government to march in on certain drug patents. But that provision in that, that act has almost never been used because of its sort of vague, broad terms and its likelihood to stir up opposition from drug makers. This is Richard Frank, a senior fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institution. It's mostly not used because, in fact, the philosophy has been you want to promote the industry to do research and development and to, to the extent that this really starts to interfere with that, is that the best way to try to control drug prices? And so one, you know, so you might say that the efforts that have been made so far have been trying to take another path. Negotiation, indexing on inflation, promoting more generic and biosimilar competition, all of those are different approaches. And so the issue here really is under what what circumstances, given all that, is it practical and to what extent would it be completely bogged down in the courts through litigation on all these different judgment calls? Most recently, margin rights have been brought up in conversation in regards to a prostate cancer drug called Extandi, which is manufactured by the Japanese pharma Astellas. That company charges patients in the U.S. more than $150,000 a year for that drug, which uh, had been developed in part with grants from the National Institutes of Health. So there have been several petitions to the federal government to exercise these so-called margin rights on this drug, but so far the government hasn't done that. And um, so there's been a recent push in the last year or so from advocates for the government to use those margin rights more. 
Frank noted that it's probably pretty unlikely, um, even though, you know, Becerra even mentioned Martin rights, for this to happen anytime soon, especially given the fact that the administration will be busy starting to implement the drug pricing provisions from the Inflation Reduction Act in the next several years. But even if they're not used, Frank believes Becerra when he says the government will continue to consider other drug pricing options. But, you know, I think the secretary's right is that there's a lot of other things you could do. They range from, you know, making sure there's more competition to using other authorities that the government has. And I think probably that's what he was talking about, was saying, you know, we're going to do a complete assessment of all the authorities we have to sort of promote more uh, reasonable prices. Mariana Sokol, an associate scientist at the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, also believes that the conversation around drug pricing is going to continue as long as the U.S. continues to have a problem with prescription drug affordability. The legislative package that passed in August that was signed into law by President Biden, the Inflation Reduction Act, yes, it did bring about historical change and you know significant reforms but many of the provisions only start in a couple of years uh, you know only become implemented are only going to be implemented in a few years and um the the clearest trend is that drug prices are continuing to increase especially the launch prices of products that are newly developed you know so um i would say that as long as we have this unaffordability crisis we will still have strong public support for measures to control drug prices or to reduce drug prices. That will still continue being a dialogue and a strong public uh, priority for as long as we have a drug pricing problem in this country. I'm Lesha Bouchak, senior reporter at MMM. That's it for this week. If you like this episode, please give it a thumbs up. Better yet, subscribe on your podcasting platform of choice and help others discover the show. The MMNM Podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Deborah Stahl, Bradley Weems, and Gordon Failer. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sohn. We're out every week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.